Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. My father's first job was as a cashier in Bank of Ireland. There wasn't officially a level of employment more junior than cashier, but if there had been a tier beneath this entry grade, it was those cashiers who were assigned to what was known as relief staff. As a relief cashier, my father travelled all around the country, providing cover wherever there was a vacancy in a branch which was not yet filled. It was a hardship posting. A sort of Russian front of the banking world. A transitory existence where the men, and they were only men in those days, put in their time, hoping for a final posting of some permanence and perhaps the chance of promotion. Nobody wanted to stay on relief staff. Well... Nobody, that is, except my father. He loved it. The place he was sent that he liked best of all was Westport. He had grown up in Paulstown in County Kilkenny, far from the sea, and the sense of possibility which came with proximity to the limitless Atlantic gave him a thrill which lasted a lifetime. Westport is a town which sits in the shadow of Crowpatrick, or the reek, as the locals call it. My father lived in Diggs, where his landlady had, as a young girl, climbed the mountain each day to bring lunch to the twelve men who worked on the construction of the church at the summit during 1905. Years later, when he had moved a long way from Westport, and when, recalling that story, reminded him of how much he missed the place, he bought himself a special climbing stick, curved at the top, and with a sharp metal point at the bottom, what the Germans call an Alpenstock. And we spoke about how we'd get to the top together some day. My father's sudden death meant that we never did get to climb the mountain, and for several years afterwards I forgot all about the plan. However, I kept my father's old Alpenstock after he died. I didn't have a use for it, but it reminded me of him. I'm going on a pilgrimage, I said to my eldest daughter six years ago. I'm going to climb a mountain. I didn't really ask her if she would join me, and she didn't really say that she would. But in that way where things that are only mentioned as possibilities move towards things that are accepted as eventualities, we found ourselves on the road to Mayo one Saturday afternoon. Nothing. Nothing, that is, except a brief stop in Supermax and Ballinalack as a concession to my travelling companion, could deflect us from our path towards Westport. We arrived in the town on the eve of Reek Sunday, the last Sunday in July, and the annual pilgrimage up the mountain. Except there wasn't any pilgrimage that year. The following day, for the first time in a millennium, the pilgrimage was cancelled. A freak hurricane had struck the mountain overnight and stormy conditions had made the climb treacherous. Nobody told us. When we woke up, we didn't bother turning on the news. We saw the miserable conditions, but no one in our hotel inquired where we were going. By the time we got to Crowpatrick, we were so late that the stewards and marshals who might have warned us off the mountain had melted away with the rain. Before we started to climb, I took my father's stick out of the back of the car and tucked it under my arm. 
We met pensioners in bare, muddy feet. We met two mothers, who carried children up the mountain in their arms through the rain. We met cheerful groups of young traveller men who told us a prayer at the top would release a soul from purgatory. Safe up, everyone said as we passed. All of this was a welcome distraction because Crowpatrick is a hard climb. That year, the climb was measured not in hours, but in chocolate bars, as I tried to coax my eight-year-old daughter up the slope. Just when I thought that I had estimated a Mars bar too few to get us to the summit, suddenly there was the simple church in front of us. My left fist closed over my daughter's hand to keep it warm. In my right hand was my father's stick. Kneeling around us were pilgrims whose reasons for climbing were as individual as our own. We said a prayer for my father and then we slipped and slid back the way we had come. Safe down. We were both quiet for a long time on the road back to Dublin and eventually I asked my daughter what she was thinking. There was a pause that stretched on as she seemed to struggle to put all she had seen and experienced on the mountain into words. Dad, she said, if we go next year, yes. I hope we get to stop for burgers in Ballinalack. Today, through the strength of heaven, light of sun, radiance of moon, splendor of fire, speed of light. The mascara and bright blue eyeshadow were applied thick and heavy, perfectly matching the jeans. The hair was styled to within an inch of its life and the mixture of hairspray and perfume was enough to declare the bedroom an environmental disaster. The disco scene had just been born and wide denim flares, lots of bright eyeshadow and permed curly hair were compulsory and set the scene for a whole generation of 1970s dance-goers. No longer referred to as dance-halls, Newly termed discos or nightclubs like Zhivago and Tamangos were considered much more trendy places to be seen. While deemed dens of iniquity by our parents, they were thought by us to be havens of magic with loud infectious music that forced you to get up and dance whether you wanted to or not. And they still had a slow set. The 1970s brought huge social change to the teens and twenty-somethings of the day. Youth clubs and show bands had become outdated and regular haunts in Dublin like the Television Club and Tara Club were left behind in favour of more supposedly sophisticated places to socialise. Places like Lord John's, Sloopy's and Saks Hotel. We frequented them all. In 1977, when the film Saturday Night Fever was released, disco music had become king. White trouser suits and black shirts became the trend. And you recreated every move that John Travolta ever made when you hit the dance floor. We danced around our handbags under the shadow of a massive glitter ball to Staying Alive or Night Fever. The film, catapulting the already successful Bee Gees, 
into superstardom. I accidentally came across a clip of the Bee Gees on YouTube recently and smiled as I watched it. I had danced many a happy night away to their music, perhaps not fully appreciating the extent of their enormous talent or the extraordinary worldwide popularity of these three Gibb brothers, Barry and twins Morris and Robin. The clip of film was taken from the 1989 One for All concert in Melbourne. I think perhaps their best. Watching it, it was difficult not to be moved by a combination of sadness, the songs, the happy memories and the visual image of these three stunningly handsome brothers together. When you get that combination, the goosebumps are at their happiest. There was also some tinge of regret never having seen them live. Questionable tribute bands in gold jackets never quite matched up. Born in Douglas on the Isle of Man to Hugh and Barbara Gibb, Barry was the eldest of the brothers. Then came the twins, Morris and Robin. They also had an older sister, Leslie, and a younger brother, Andy, both of whom were born in Manchester. Their father, a Manchester man, was a band leader and moved to the Isle of Man for work, subsequently returning to Manchester, where Andy was born. Music was in their blood from early on, and when the family moved to Melbourne, their careers took off. With the arrival of the disco scene and the film Saturday Night Fever, they became superstars. Barry's falsetto voice, undiscovered until then, Barry was probably the most popular with his great hair, immaculately groomed beard, glow-in-the-dark teeth and affable personality. Morris had married Lulu, wore the hat and was most likely the party-going one. But to me, Robin had something quite special. He seemed the more shy and complex one. Hearing him sing, I started a joke... He could well have been singing about his own vulnerability and insecurity. Their youngest brother, Andy, also a talented singer and teen idol, often sang with his brothers, but died tragically in March 1988, just after his 30th birthday. He was married in 1976 and divorced with a young child and in 1985 married Dallas actress Victoria Principal, his life sadly beset by ongoing drug addiction. Morris passed away in 2003, following a surgical intervention, and Robin died in May 2012, following a long battle with cancer. The Bee Gees also wrote major hits for many other artists, And Barry also wrote the song Grease is the Word from that unforgettable, iconic film. I think it's difficult to surpass the music of the 1970s. Great lyrics mixed with great melodies and great voices create a magic that feeds the soul, whatever genre that may be. Barry now carries on the Bee Gees' legacy and their story from humble beginnings in Manchester to tragedy and superstardom is both heartbreaking and fascinating and recounted in the recent documentary How Do You Mend a Broken Heart?
Finding that treasured clip of film, I am immediately transported back to those disco nights of the 1970s when we joyously spent hours getting ready, wore bright blue eyeshadow, Charlie perfume and white trouser suits. I am back on the dance floor, rolling back time and falling in love with them and the music all over again. The sun really was like a burning orb as we bounced along the coastal roads in the works bus. The North Sea lay beyond the stunning inlets and fjords of eastern Scotland. Next to me sat a very tall and somewhat sleepy fellow, his helmet in his hands, the big working boots planted awkwardly within the tiny space of our seats. His fiery hair reminded me of Luke Kelly, but he looked utterly out of place, as if he had stumbled into the silent bus by mistake. I, on the other hand, was still trying to come to terms with my new summer job, which, through the good offices of a brother of a good friend, had taken us out of the music-filled, troubles-laden lifestyle of university students in Korean to the stunning filmic beauty of Inverness and the surrounding landscapes of mountains and sea, tiny, granite-built villages such as Tain, and the long sweeping roads winding upwards or so it seemed into the clarifying sky. What are you doing on the rig site? I asked as clearly as I could muster at this god-awful time in the very early morning. Had dawn just passed? In the civic side, digging and the like. You? I couldn't believe my own voice when I said, I'm a Pipefitter's mate. A pipefitter's mate? Who would have believed it? But there I was in my wimpy helmet, my working boots, my gloves, and carrying inside my jacket a face mask. But I'm really a student from Ireland. He looked at me unconvinced. I'm a crofter, he said, unsentimentally. A crofter? It was obvious, of course. You could easily imagine him working away at the side of a hill, rebuilding a stone wall, or driving a tractor across stubble fields and icy streams. The incongruity of him bunched up in this bus, jostling along in silence and looking across his natural countryside, shook me. I didn't see him again after that first encounter. After we entered through the gates to that massive construction site, Men gathered at their own workplaces, and many, myself included, disappeared inside the belly of the beast, as it lay on its side like a massive mechano set, with huge tanks and scaffolding, cranes and lifts, the noise of construction everywhere. The plan we eventually discovered was that on completion the dam walls would be opened, and the rig, which was quite literally being built lying on one side, would be flooded, and that flotation tanks would steady the rig as it righted itself 
and the water's buoyancy would take over. The whole thing would then be taken by tugboats into the bay and ultimately out into the North Sea, where it would go to work, serviced by the oil men, while the riggers, the electricians, the fitters, the welders, the navvies and all the rest would move on to another job somewhere else in the world. I stuck it out for about eight weeks, made some money to cover student debts and thought no more of the experience as life returned to some kind of normal, or at least the kind of normal you could expect in the North at the height of the grim troubles. My pal and I shared those weeks in a small caravan parked at the edge of an alluring inlet to which an equally small village had been attached. We worked eleven hours a day, or perhaps I should say we were present for eleven hours a day, stuck inside those tanks, handing out implements to the craftsmen who were building the insides of the rig. Stainless steel pipes, for one thing, critical infrastructure. Messages and instructions were chalked up because you couldn't converse since the noise of the grinders was simply ear-splitting and the rays of fire that shot from contact, steel on steel. And the goggles made us all look like demons within this hellish circular inner world, lit by strings of arc lights. The hierarchy of labour, even in such a place, was noticeable at every turn. High, high up in our world, the crane drivers surveyed the site with a humanity and independence we on the ground could only imagine. They had our lives in their hands. How they lasted up there on tea sandwiches and the sound of the wind rattling their cabins along with Radio Caroline was beyond me. Some welders had mythical status, such as Cat Weasel, who could climb any height or dangle off any plank of scaffolding to get that welded joint in place. He wore his shielded mask like a warrior, and was one of the best-paid workers on the site, so the story went, because he never really stopped. The American bosses, in their Stetson hats and cowboy boots, encouraged such mind-numbing devotion. For us, the navvies and the others, work was very much something that had to be done. Praise could be done without. As that clanging, lonely, hard and dangerous world those men inhabited resurfaces from time to time all these years later. One lasting memory comes to mind to set alongside all the others. We had pitched up in the tidy Royal Arms Hotel of the village, a hotel straight out of a John Buchan novel. My friend and I helped out in the bar at weekends. It was overrun with the oil workers, many from Glasgow, but also from the nearby Highlands. As we dutifully poured out pints upon pints of Guinness and let them sit in time-honoured Irish fashion, we finally gave up the effort as thirsty drinkers lifted their glasses and drained the unsettled lot before hitting the teacher's whisky ahead of 10pm closing time. By way of entertainment, one of the Irish lads would strap up his mighty piano key accordion and play a selection of popular tunes and ballads just for this assembly on a Saturday night. One of those tunes, played with relish, couldn't have been stranger when I think back on it now. For in that granite-built hotel on the edge of the glorious highlands, 
as night fell before another amazing morning's journey into the dawnlight. The wistful Caribbean-like rhythms rang out of Yellow Bird. Humidity and heat saturate like a thick soup. It's a struggle to feel cool. You're here for three weeks in Brazil, teaching at the University of Sao Paulo. The students, curious about your foreignness, are tolerant of your constant brow-mopping in the classroom as you tell them the story of Irish literature from the early 20th century to the present. You carry water everywhere. During the tropical days... You wonder how a city the size of Sao Paulo and named after St Paul of Tarsus has extended itself from its first Portuguese settlement to the massive, unending urban body which seems to stretch uninterrupted like the distance between Dublin and Galway. You notice how many ways you can describe this place tropical, diverse, ugly yet beautiful, Brazilian yet multiracial, rich yet poor and so much else besides. Your three main gateways to any new city are as follows. Take a few taxi rides, visit the art gallery, then spend days walking the streets. A tried and trusted route to discovery, as ever. It doesn't disappoint. On the political front, you learn that all taxi drivers, especially the younger ones, approve of the president, Jair Bolsonaro you decide to head for an art gallery. But on the way to the Sao Paulo Museum of Art on the Paulista Avenue, you're waylaid by an impromptu Zumba dance session outside a shopping centre. It's tantalising. You want to join in, but stop yourself with a quick reality check. You wander on, trip and fall flat on your face in a market and are struck by how concerned people are as they rescue you from near disaster and attempt to restore your dignity, your bag and the sandal that slipped off your right foot. Eventually the gallery, one of the flagship glass and concrete buildings of Sao Paulo architecture, finished in 1968, is in view. It houses, along with European and English schools, a collection called Brazil and the Americas. The collections are hung in rows from the ceiling rather than exhibited on walls, so there is a sense of constant movement as people circle around the paintings, which include work by Diego Rivera, Alfredo Volpi, and what interests you most, work by Candido Portinari, who died in 1962. Portinari's modernist paintings depict Brazilian people and activities people with big hands and feet which show they are unafraid of hard work. He responds to coffee and cocoa pickers, to ordinary people who struggle for survival. The artist's own origins were not privileged and the work is proof of this reality. I am the son of the red earth, he once commented. I decided to paint the Brazilian reality, naked and crude as it is. However, 
His painting, War and Peace, now housed in the UN General Assembly building in New York, was created in response to World War II and consists of two murals depicting the spectrum of horrors that changed lives forever. His use of blue tones in the mural War contrast with the lighter yellows of the mural Peace. Ever conscious of the mix of ethnicities that lived in Brazil, he attempted through his work to connect different racial groups. And today, this revelation of the underbelly of wealth, poverty and diminishment remains his legacy. Everybody, it appears, is working, or at least trying to work, in Brazil. The streets are lined with stallholders selling identical goods, the necklaces and jewellery, scarves and handbags which bind the globalised world in a cheap aesthetic barter. You puff your way through the humidity, resorting to taxis back to the hotel if the trek uphill is too steep. Nobody bothers you. After a few days, you feel as safe as you would any place else, despite all the melodramatic warnings about Sao Paulo, whether in the street or in the city's great urban park, the Ibira Puera. People often travel in search of beauty, however they understand that to be, or novelty or excitement. Sao Paulo is not beautiful at all. It is so much more than that. It is an experience that demands a little personal recalibration because it retains the mystery of an expressionist painting flecked with a colour and texture to which one is forced to return in order to really see it. That is what you hope to do, to return and see beyond the hilly, densely packed favelas with their satellite dishes to see beyond the high-rise, wealthier apartment blocks which rear up at the thundery cloud banks of late afternoon, to see beyond the high-walled mansions and the people sleeping rough who live without walls. Because what else can you do but learn to see? Every morning, the old man with his basket of pastries comes through the cave tunnel at the back of the small beach in Playa Darrow. Pasta la crema, he calls out in a guttural voice, or something like that, always the same, his morning incantation. Girls, don't look over. We can't afford them, Dad says. Then to me, I said, don't look over. You'll draw him on us. I'm not. God. I grab the snorkel and flippers and run into the sea. Lie face down, the taste of the rubber snorkel in my mouth, the sound of my breath underwater. Coloured fish move in a shoal below me. I kick my flippered feet, shoot along like a fish, swim around the rocks to the inlet where I can't be seen by people on the beach, especially my family. I'm not speaking to my dad. He caught me kissing the guy who operates the bumpers. What did you think you were doing going off with the fairground, Johnny? Jim, Mam said, to try and quieten him. But on and on he went, until I was squirming and burning in the back of the car. I pull off the snorkel, 
Compare the back of my hand with my palm. The back of my hand is tanned, but compared to the Spanish, I'm still pale. I sit on a rock and lift my face to the sun, hair wet, heavy and warm on my back. Streaming with seawater, I walk back to them. Dad is lying face down with his swimming togs pulled up so he can tan his buttocks. Mam reaches for the Nivea sun cream and her lipstick. Here, rub that in and put on some lipstick. You don't want to get another cold sore. I rub in the thick cream that smells of our bathroom at home and put on her peach lipstick. Then move my towel away from their chaos of clothes, lilos and the ice bucket. Like we're on Duncanon Strand with fellas whacking a slither with thurlies. The Spanish have their colourful towels spread out in perfect rectangles. Their hair in neat knots at the top of their heads. I straighten my towel and perch on it, the scent of their coconut sun cream in the air. Emer is standing in the waves crying because she has sand in her eyes and Elaine is trying to get it out. I'm not speaking to Elaine either, because Mom bought us two bikinis at the market in Andorra. Hers was cream and brown and mine orange and lemon. But when I walked into the sea, the material was like tissue, completely see-through. Elaine had a good laugh then, because she knew already but didn't tell me. For lunch, Mam hands me crusty bread and cheese with onions and tomatoes. I take it from her and return to my towel. Why are you sitting over there? Elaine asks. Too good for us? Leave her alone, Mam says. Even after the bread and cheese, I'm still hungry. My best friend Mags and I are always hungry now and always on diets. After domestic science class, we sat on the wall and ate stew from the pot with our hands. My eyes feel grainy and there's an ache in my lower belly. My new breasts like secrets under my bikini top. The blue sea changes colour, turns darker. Another vendor comes through the tunnel. She's dressed in black with a round Madonna face. She's carrying a basket of purple grapes and some of the Spanish call to her and buy a bunch. The woman has seen me watching her and she walks towards me, the tips of her fingers holding the twig, a bunch of grapes hanging like on the vine. She holds them out towards me, saying something in Spanish. Dad shouts over to her, No, no, no pesetas! She pushes the air towards him, spits words, flogging him away with her tongue. I can't take it in. Someone is standing up to my father. No charge, she says, for her. And when she leans towards me, her eyes are the same indigo colour as the grapes. She drops them, fat and cool, into my hand. I imagine that she knows everything about me, even more than I do. And then she's gone. The grapes are cold, the skin tight. A burst of juice as I bite into the skin to the soft flesh underneath. I'm sure that I will be ordered to share, but nobody says anything. They look away from me as if I've left them or done something shameful. One by one, I eat the grapes straight from the twig, spit pips into my hand to make a flower pattern on the sand.
Columba and the Crane. A crane arrived, crumpled in the waves, pulled back and sloshed towards the shore, a dimming heart, a mess of feathers. We witnessed how he fed it back to life, until the bird would trail him everywhere. In chapel, it would kneel by his side. This crane will rise up on the third day, returning to its home in Ireland. But we must use our spirit wings and pray for glimpses of our heavenly abode. The third day we assembled on the strand and watched the bird alight above the ocean, diminish to a freckle in the skies, leaving a silver feather in our minds. On this morning's programme we heard Reek Sunday by Bernard Dunleavy, Saturday Night Dancing Fever by Mary Wall, Building the Rig by Gerald Daw, Sao Paulo Days by Mary O'Donnell, Woman with Grapes by Lanny O'Hanlon, and St. Columba and the Crane, a poem by James Harper. The music was The Deer's Cry by Sean Davey, featuring Rita Connolly on vocals, Stayin' Alive by The Beatles, Yellow Bird by Arthur Lyman, Umbabaruma by Georges Benjour, and Irlanda Lucia by John Walsh. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. For more from Miscellany and other RTE arts and culture programmes, see rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.